Hi, this is Sander Alamani from the Arabist. When we recorded the podcast tonight, it turned out that we had a technical problem and only one of the microphones was working. So the sound quality isn't exactly as good as we'd like it to be. But we fixed it a little bit, put in some mixers in there, cleaned the sound up, and we hope that you can still enjoy it. We'll try to do better next time. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Arabist Podcast. Today is June 2nd, 2012. We have uplifting music as a theme song, but the mood in Cairo and much of Egypt is more uh, along the, the lines of a funeral march. Yeah, major it's events, major events this week. Uh, since the last time we we uh, uh, had this podcast uh, on the eve of elections, the first round has taken place. The results have come out, as I'm sure you're all familiar. The second uh, part of the election will feature basically a contest between Mohamed Morsi of the Freedom and Justice Party and Ahmed Shafiq, uh, last prime minister of the NDP. Of Formerly of the NDP, I'm not sure if he was a member. Actually, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. But but uh, uh, of, of something more important than the NDP of, 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 the, of the Egyptian military. Mm. And uh, if I if I rem- if I remember, we actually identified that as our really our worst case scenario runoff was Morsi Shafiq. So we got it. Hooray for democracy. Well, we got it as the one as the worst possible outcome. I think there's still a few surprising things about uh, the, these results that we'll, that we'll come to in a second. Obviously, just today, earlier this morning, other major news. The verdict came out in the trial of uh, Hosni Mubarak, uh, his sons, his interior minister, and uh, various other senior security officials. Mubarak and his interior minister, Habib Adli, sentenced to life imprisonment, all the others released. We're going to get back at the end uh, of the episode in that, and we want to touch a little bit on the, 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 the dramatic uh, and depressing news from Syria and, and the Hula massacre in particular. But first, what's been on our mind for, for most of the last week is what do these results mean? Where is Egypt headed? Are we going into a crisis? Just to recap uh, quickly the, the results, Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood and Freedom and Justice Party came first with about 0.7, sorry, 24.8% of the vote. Then Ahmed Shafiq, uh, running as an independent, but a uh, former Air Force general, uh, former uh, prime minister and minister under Mubarak, with uh, closely behind at 236 uh, then Hamdi Sabahi, uh, the really kind of like surprise phenomenon of this election, someone that uh, few would have uh, said would, would, would get more than, let's say, 10-12%. Someone I was dismissing as a fringe candidate, a well-meaning, so one of the few secularists without regime ties. But yeah, he, I mean, Sabahi was a huge surprise as well. A very, very, very unexpected uh, performance with 27, 20.7%. Uh, then Abdul Manel Futur, a long uh, favorite a month ago uh, to get into the second round, uh, possibly with uh, uh, 17.5% more or less. Then the other major surprise, the major failure, Abdul Musa. Abdul Musa, the front runner for all of last year, one, one time hitting a 40% uh, uh, poll rating, uh, considered by some not so long ago as a possible winner in the first round, someone who could get more than 50% in the first round, completely collapsed, uh, 11%. Uh, those are our top five uh, results. Uh, I think notable also is that no one else uh, came, got higher than 1%. Uh, Mohamed Salim Al-Awa, an Islamist uh, thinker, got about 1%. Khalil Ali, the, 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 the hope of uh, the revolutionary youth, got only about half a percent. Uh, so, 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 so that's it. I mean, the the first thing I mean I, I just want to note upon is is how how much as we highlighted in the last podcast, this is for a lot of people the worst possible results. The one that confirms what Hosni Mubarak has been warning all along: that it's either us, the regime, the military establishments, and its uh, patronage networks, or the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, yeah, it's 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 super depressing. I mean, it, it, and I think people have been a little stunned 
because you're uh, you know by these uh, by the results. I think last time when we uh, when we spoke just before the vote, there was a couple of interesting things that carry over. And that one we talked about whether or not all these polls were reliable. And the polls showed at first you had months and months of Abu Futuh and uh, and Musa. In the front, you had the brief Khairat al-Shatr and Omar Soleiman coming in and then getting disqualified, and Hazm Abu Ismail, the Salafist candidate, getting disqualified. But it was always seemed to be Abu Futuh and Musa. And and when they when we had a debate a month ago, they were the two people that were that were there debating because they were perceived as the two front runners. And now it turns out that we devoted four hours of our lives to watching a debate between the fourth and fifth place finishers. And so one of the questions is whether these polls were wrong all along or whether it really was a case of Musa and Abu Futuh plummeting in the final four to six weeks before the vote. Well, or, I mean, it's both a question of maybe the, the, the overestimation of their campaigns and the underestimation of other campaigns. I mean, in a way, it, the the two the two candidates that did well, perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised, are the candidates that could rely on a, a strong political machine. Existing, yeah, existing apparatus that right. were there, whether it be regime connected people or the Brotherhood people. The, That's correct. The to political machines that, that exist in the country. And I mean, um, as far as the reliability of the polls, yeah, I think there's been a lot of questions raised about, and you have raised them in, in articles of, of, your, of your own, Ashraf, um, about the, the sampling of the respondents, although what the polls did track is they did sort of track the motion, so they did catch. They did show Morsi's, Sabahi, and, and Shafiq kind of surging at the, the end. That the was indicated. Yes. Yeah, the, the momentum in those, in those final days. I think it's also worth keeping in mind that the campaign period was really, really short. Even in the earlier polls, there were polls where like 40% of respondents were saying they were undecided. So, I mean, so. I mean, that just leaves the margin of unpredictability so, so large. Mm -hmm. um, people really did make up, millions of people made up their mind at the very last minute. And also... And I think there's a theory that a lot of those last minute voters work in the Islamist favor because they're the ones that are best at day of uh, getting the word out, getting the mobilization, reaching the undecideds online and doing... I think that's one of the things they're credited as a strength. Is, is, is the brothers excel at that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, although and although the Sabahi campaign was also one of the ones that suddenly got a lot of people at the last minute. Also, you saw something like his campaign become the campaign itself. Sort of suddenly seemed to take on an amplitude and a visibility in the very last weeks. You know, suddenly Why? What do you think bigger. led to that? He had way more posters. It was very active, and partly it was the momentum, but partly he seems to have actually gotten well, some. I, I want to approach this actually in a little bit more structured way. If we take these top five candidates quickly, I think one at a time. All right. What? How do we explain their success? And how do we explain their failure? I think also what we have to keep in mind: yes, the organizational men won out, but it's not like they got a lot more than anyone else. Uh, they, uh, after all, you know, with Morsi with 25%, it's not that far from 20% that Sabahi got, who has not much organization, right. not much money. So you want to you go name by name? Morsi, what do you want to say? Okay, well, let, uh, yeah, let's, start, uh, let's start from the top. Mohammed Morsi clearly benefits from the, 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 the time-tested electoral organizational machine of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. He himself was one of the architects of the uh, electoral success in parliamentary elections of the Muslim Brotherhood over the last decade. That being said, a lot of people are pointing out he got less than 25% during the presidential election, whereas the Muslim Brotherhood got 46% in the uh, parliamentary elections. All right. Now, of course, you can make a straight comparison because this is a national election, whereas the parliamentary elections are district-based. Sure. But still, it's quite a drop, and I think one interpretation of that result is that it's not necessarily that there's only 25% of people of the population that supports the Muslim Brotherhood, but, but only 25% chose to make their first choice. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sure that some of the followers are 
comfortable with Morsi too, but they prefer Abu Futur at the end. Right. Is it the man? Was it Morsi? Or is it this, this affection that we've been talking about in the last episode with the Muslim Brotherhood, with this idea that uh, they're too greedy, they're too power hungry, they're liars, or that simply they haven't achieved much? Well, well, two things, and that one, I think it was absolutely not the man. You know, I, th I think people still were not voting for Mohamed Morsi. They were voting for the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, I don't think he has, you know, they got his face out everywhere, but it's not, and he was, you know, giving interviews and things like that. But, but I don't think they even really sold it as him. They were selling it as elect us. And I'm very curious about that because there's almost an acknowledged thing that if you're electing Mohamed Morsi vice president, he's not the only one, or president, he's not the only one you're electing president. You're electing the Muslim Brotherhood. You're basically electing the guidance council to be president of Egypt. I mean, I don't even think he made any bones about the fact that he was still a loyal soldier in an organization larger than him and was running on their behalf. Yeah, he was running on a platform, this renaissance project that the Brotherhood has put together as its platform for governing Egypt at least in the next few years. Uh, uh, it includes all sorts of, uh, both things that have nothing to do with, with religion, which most people associate with the Muslim Brotherhood with, so it's economic reform and so on and so forth. Uh, and things that do have to do with religion, uh, uh, such as, I mean, if you look at one, one, one of the laws that's currently in preparation, that's probably going to be passed by September or so, is going to be about reforming the, the, the financial system to make it easier to uh, carry out Islamically correct banking and uh, investment and so on. That's what I'm so sick of the Islamic banking people. It's such a, sh it's such a scam. They just rename things and pretend they've invented something new. It's important new. To that label is important. It's an exercise in, in PR and self-delusion. Anyway, so Morsi sorry, sorry. benefits from the, from the organizational clout of the Brotherhood, but there, there is a, a lot of people have taken, in fact, the 25% he garnered as an indication that there's actually significant disenchantment with right. the Brotherhood on the part of the electorate. Okay, on to yeah. Shafiq. I mean, Shafiq... You know, who, 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 who backed Shafiq? Uh, the full remnants of the old regime. Uh, uh, I think what's interesting here, if you compare with the parliamentary election, is that the Fulul, these remnants, the old, the remnants of the National Democratic Party, the small town notables, the people who, who, who were part and parcel of the old regime, did not come out. In, in, in the parliamentary elections that much. They only they got, cared about 3-4%. Yeah, so, and everybody was worried about them and they were a blip on the radar and the Salafists were the surprise. This I, time around... Yeah, and I think they weren't sure... Back then, they weren't ready to do so. This time around, they definitely came out. I think they did. You know, Charles Robinson was on the podcast last week. He did a great story. We went up to Minofia a few days ago and uh, uh, talked to uh, people who are part of those old regime networks. And they basically said exactly that. Yeah, we weren't ready in the parliamentary elections. But here, we have a clear candidate. This is our man. We're going to support him, and, 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 and uh, Minofia was, was the place, the governorate of Egypt, that most supported uh, Ahmed Shafiq. Uh, over half of uh, Minufis who voted went for Shafiq. Also, of course, the home province of uh, Hosni Mubarak and Anwar Sadat. And Anwar Sadat. And officials of the regime. Um, so, I mean, there's that. There are the, the people who are just sick and tired of the uh, political anxiety and insecurity and so on. The people who've been scared by the perception of instability in the country and, and, and are yearning for someone who will make the trains run on time. Whether, and that, that sort of, that swath of people goes from basically, cons, you know, people who are politically conservative goes both from like very upper class, from businessmen, from people who mm -hmm. feel their interests threatened, to also um, very, very, very lower class, too, people to whom the sort of strong man agree uh, argument has has um, appealed, like, you know, we need to, we need a little bit more law and order. The strong man argument agrees, uh, appeals to people rich and poor, I find. But, yeah, uh, no, that's what I'm saying. I don't think there's, a, I think he has a certain appeal across, across the socioeconomic. Now, and then, um, of course, there have also been allegations uh, although they can't, they haven't been able to substantiate them. Uh, that his campaign paid bribes, and that's something I heard a lot from mm -hmm. election observers. Um, you heard it from other campaigns. Mohamed Morsi's campaign too. 
You did, although the worst offender um, was was supposedly the Shafiq campaign. But I, you know, I was told to people who then said, but it's very hard to document these kinds of things. You know, it's sort of dangerous. How do you, what do you do? Go up and record when people are being given money. Um, and also, there is this question about the the voter rolls themselves and allegations that there were a lot of new voters added to the voter rolls and who were these people and you know, were new identity cards issued and, you know, possibly to conscripts who aren't allowed to vote. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories at this point about, you know, state support for Shafiq. Um, uh, at an organized institutional level. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can come back to this question whether it was, it was this election free and fair or not. Uh, just to finish up, Shafiq, uh, uh, obviously all people who voted for them, people who are terrified of the Muslim Brotherhood. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, this includes uh, at least the Coptic establishment, a good part of the Coptic establishment, the church appears to have, and we, we have this, you know, from... from yeah, that's a touchy from, subject. Uh, 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 that, that they've encouraged people to vote for, for uh, uh, Shafiq. And an important thing to remember about uh, Egyptian politics is that uh, Christians, as a my, uh, being a minority, tend to vote as a bloc much more than Muslims. And are much more likely to respond to their the, their priests' advice, especially in rural areas. Mm. At least that's that's the best trend. Now, of course, it's, it's, it's it would be ridiculous to say that all Christians voted for Shafiq. Clearly, many did not. Mm -hmm. Some voted for Hamid Sabahi. Some voted for uh, Abul Futuh or other candidates. Mm -hmm. Uh, but this issue of the church's institutional support for Shafiq, you know, being very reminiscent of its institutional support for, for Hosni Mubarak till the very end. Because he was regarded as one of the things protecting them from the yeah. bearded hordes. Yeah, uh, uh, it was, it was a very controversial issue and, and has been raised. It was a great post by Sam Monkey defending, of course, Christians uh, uh, from this. And we'll, we'll uh, add that. One, one last Shafiq nugget I want to put in there for, for, for the conspiracy theory minded in that there's this perception that, that Shafiq really came on strong right at the end. In that he was sort of fringe, and then May first started, and suddenly every new poll saw him surging, and there was like kind of this like, oh my god, where is he coming from? And next thing you know, he's he's in the runoff. Like it, it, it felt like almost this hit and run thing. But I want to take you back to uh, the 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 excellent must read uh, Cairo based journalist Sarah Carr, who we will have on the podcast one day, I'm sure, in a blog post. From May of last year, we're talking March, March of 2011. This is shortly after Shafiq, who had been Mubarak's final prime minister and overlapped for about a week or two after the revolution, and then basically resigned in disgrace, having been embarrassed on national TV by Ale Aswani, and and sort of just was was a, a national lapping stock. March 2011, Sarah Carr wrote a blog post, and we'll link to it on the uh, on the page. It, where of a chance meeting in like a cell phone shop on Abdulaziz Street with a state security officer, immediate aftermath of the revolution, and Shafiq is gone. He's been bounced and disgraced. Quote, a conversation started inevitably about the Tahrir sit-in. The first indication that politics was not the man's forte was given when he asserted, this is a state security officer, when he asserted insistently that not only does the army back Shafiq, but that he of the pullover, the sweaters that he was always mocked for wearing in public, he just never quite looked the way Egyptians think their politicians should look, but that Ahmed Shafiq will be Egypt's next president. March 2011, people. So, just planting seeds out there. Do with that what you will. Moving on uh, to uh, Hamdin Sabahi. Hamdin Sabahi, for those of you who are not familiar with him, is a populist politician, uh, founder of the Karana Party, breakaway party from the Nasserist Party. So he, he occupies a space in the Egyptian political spectrum that's that's left but ultranationalist. Uh, basically, the Nasserism of the 1960s, this this kind of uh, uh, gilded age of, of of Egypt's splendor in the eyes of some, and and, and the the beginning of. Uh, uh, dictatorship and uh, the mm -hmm. state in the eyes of many others. Uh, um, pro Arab unity, pro modified socialism, 
criticism against him, kind of pro-dictator in the past couple of years for non-Egyptian dictators, was a little bit too cozy with, what, Gaddafi and Saddam? Yes? Gaddafi and Saddam, yeah. Okay, that's not good. Uh, I remember two years ago the, for the 40th anniversary of the Libyan revolution, the one that brought Gaddafi to power, the magazine he edited was covered with praise for Libya and its great and wise leader and so on. Right, so there's that. So it is appointing, you know, as much as he's, he's, he's uh, supposed to be the candidate of the youth and, and the revolution and so on. Uh, a little bit of a disappointing figurehead and mind you I think pretty much all the candidates are disappointing in this election well and he's somebody who I mean if you'll recall in the last uh, podcast I detailed how I'd managed to flip flop like three times in the space of seven days on who I was going to vote for and I kind of let myself get talked out of Hamdeen by friends several friends whose, whose opinions I respect and who in individual things just sort of openly dismissed him as being kind of simplistic and talking and thinking in bumper stickers. Like, the, the people, people, it wasn't just that they said no to him, it was that they were like, him? Oh, God, no. And they were so visceral in their reactions that I let them kind of nudge me over. And I ended up voting for Khalid Ali, who, who we'll mention very briefly, as a super fringe secularist candidate. And I, I would have voted for Hamdeen if I knew he was going to do this well. I, don't, I did not expect this. He's actually the one who wasn't relying on this established network, as we talked about. The Morsi and Shafiq were both plugging into set power structures and networks. And, and Abu al-Futuh and Musa and Sabahi were trying to build these new coalitions that weren't based on pre-existing bodies. And, and you could argue that Sabahi was the most successful of those three, of the trio of Abu al-Futuh, Musa, and, and Sabahi. Unless you believe the conspiracy theory against Sabahi. Which is what? I keep hearing that the people that his, that a, a bunch of money showed up in, in his well, in the last month, so the, what's the theory? It's that the Brotherhood themselves backed him at the end to undermine Abu al-Futuh. This came out about four days ago. I hadn't heard this. Yeah, this came out about four days ago on the Facebook group in support of Khagat al-Shatr which started this kind of flame war with the Sabahi supporters All right. and said that uh, Khagat al-Shatr had given him 500,000 uh, pounds, nearly $100,000, uh, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, the theory being that... Oh, that's good! I'm just not devious enough. I'd never even thought of this. That is so. It, of course, it, it's completely I, I never would have thought. I love either. that. But it's but you're but you but it's it's a it's a rumor that one has we've heard from multiple different sources. So whether it's okay, it's it's kind of. I had heard people whisper about the sudden cash injection and just surge in 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 in, in capabilities uh, for Hamdeen in that final month. But I hadn't had anyone connect all the dots for me. Okay, so. That's that theory. No, and I mean it's it's just a theory. Sure, sure. But um, I, I mean I think personally, if we want to talk about this, the the reasons the candidates did or didn't do so well. I mean, what Hamdin Zabahi got was um, the actually quite considerable vote, kind of for change, for supportive of the revolution, the vote of people who wanted somebody who was a clearly an opponent of the Mubarak regime, which he does have a respectable history of being. Absolutely. Somebody who wasn't an Islamist. Um, and 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 that vote went looking for a candidate, like you say, Isandar. The options were not particularly impressive, and and the and the best they could do was was Hamdin Sabahi. And you saw, you know, a lot of of enthusiasm build up around him, um, you know, deserved or not, because that vote was looking for a home. It was looking for a a non-regime connected secularist figure. And yeah, it, 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 and, and it's partly also because the next candidate on our list, uh, Abdul Munayim Abdul Futur, I guess did not convince some secularists that he was uh, uh, moderate enough of an Islamist. And it would have happened to Abdul Futur. I mean, Abdul Futur had been. Uh, certainly had gotten a lot of media attention, was going well in the polls until a few weeks ago. Uh, and what and seems to have happened... And didn't do terribly, let's say. I didn't I mean, do terribly. 17% yeah. is yeah. still significant. He's only a couple of points away from, from Hamdi Sabahi, so he did pretty well. Uh, what convinced the people who might have voted for him to vote for Sabahi instead? And I wonder if it's not that, that as this, the double Futur coalition grew, it became unsustainable to have both liberal secularists right. and the Noor party when the Salafists when the, when the Noor party joined up 
then it, it feels like a lot of his, you know, you, 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 it's, it's logical to expect that sort of the leftist wing of his tent was going to go, wait a minute, I, I seriously doubt he's not making them promises that we're not going to like. And there's that perception that in the, cor- in the course of his big tent trying to be all things to all people, he's in fact being everything at the same time and it being contradictory. And this is one of the, probably the most effective point that Musa made in their debate was that basically saying when he's with Salafists, he's a Salafist. When he's with liberals, he's a liberal. Just that, that you know, this centrist, new agey talk is just him lying. And, and I think that might have stuck. And then finally, Amr Musa. Amr Musa uh, uh, really is an embarrassingly low score, really, so much egg on his face. So you think, uh, you think Musa underperformed, but Abul Futuh didn't? Not by much, I don't mm-hmm. think. Abel, I mean, remember that in some of the polls, you know, they were getting like 11, 12 percent each and then like a huge amount undecided. Right. And no, I think it, the big shock when we, the Musa campaign themselves were shocked. Mm. Now, here, here's some, 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 some theories about why Musa didn't do well. In my opinion, the, the main reason is because at the end of the day, he had no energized space behind him. Abu Futuh and Handin and Morsi and Shafiq did have people from it was crucial, absolutely super important to have their candidate in. Uh, Musa was not exciting. He ran as, you know, as I put it last week, I think the disappointment everyone can live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not good enough. People clearly in this first round didn't vote strategically, they voted with their hearts. They voted for, you know, the candidate that thought was closest to, to their beliefs, I think. And uh, at the end of the day, he didn't offer anything compelling. He had no, there were no Musa fanboys, basically. He offered, he had a, he had a decent pitch. He offered yeah. being a calming force, a transitional force. I can see yeah, why. Emotional and not an emotional political but because, because, because he offered being calming, but if people who wanted, who wanted, like, a stability vote, they went for the guy who's going to kick ass, which in that case is Shafiq. Shafiq offered a more sort of strong man, if that was the vote you wanted, like yeah. a really secular, strong. And otherwise, I think also Musa suffered a lot and somewhat unfairly from the fact that he was targeted and criticized all throughout as himself a member of the former regime and lumped in with Shafiq. Because 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 Shafiq snuck up on us. He he was just hiding in the weeds until May first and then suddenly we're looking around and I'm sorry, I'm I'm as depressed and disillusioned as I have ever been. And I, and, and 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 where the hell did he come from? I, I, I can you can list all of these people and I, look, we're journalists. We're 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 trained to be a little bit empathetic. You you interview people all the time whose views you find abhorrent and you have to try to sort of accurately present them, and it takes a bit of empathy. I just can't get into the head of a Shafiq voter. I just can't do it. This really pisses me off. And it was starting, and the last week, I'm sorry, look, I'm a citizen. I, I mean, this, this is fucking appalling. Uh, this, Shafiq? Aha. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, and we should we should note that is that is an Egyptian expression that um, has a certain vulgar connotation. And and but basically, you know, denotes uh, ex- being uh, extremely disappointed and humiliated and no, taken advantage of, and that's an aha moment. No, it's one of look. It's one of those things. Look, I'm I'm half American as well, my citizenship wise, and so I had to endure two times watching my fellow countrymen over there either elect George Bush or at least have the vote so close that it could be stolen somehow. Where And you just wander around going, who are these people? Like, I can understand a Morsi voter. I can respect this. Shafiq, explain this. I think, I think you can't, well, I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna actually engage with you on this. I'm gonna be like the pretend Shafiq voter in this conversation. I will say this though, and I think then maybe we're gonna have I mean, to pass. We'll be good, we'll, yes. We'll have to move on past the elections is that one thing to keep in mind, and it's, you know, a sort of terribly thin silver lining, is that if you look at the actual vote, you know, half of the country did not want a Muslim brother or a member of the former regime. 50% of the electorate voted for a moderate, 
for change kind of candidate, a moderate or at least reformist, <coughs> if not revolutionary candidate. Unfortunately, that vote was split up in a way that did not get any of those people into the second round. Right. But if you, but if you, but I mean, obviously, the majority of your of your fellow countrymen actually think like you, and if you include the Brotherhood in like a vote for change, then seventy five percent of the country felt right. that way. So uh, yeah, I mean, the silver lining is if you basically take the Abu Futuh and Sabahi people as one block, call them something as as having enough commonalities between them to be considered one block, and even toss in Musa to an extent. I mean, once you have the Shafiq over here on the extreme, suddenly Musa seems like that's why I said you know, I'm a reformist. I mean, people who voted right. for Musa want things to be improved. They, they, they're and and they want a kind of moderate. So that's the you know? Egyptian majority right yeah. there. But but we might not get the, the, with with the shitstorm that's coming in the next five years between either of these people. We might not get to an election in five years for this block to find itself and 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 do you know count this as their growing pains and realize that they need to kind of like get their ducks in a row. Well, and, they need and, an organizational framework and they need a candidate that's a unifying candidate, or they'll never. And I, I, I want to get back to these points, and we're, I think we're, we should discuss that uh, in tandem with the Mubarak verdict, and actually, sure. because uh, everything is up in the air right now. There's negotiations on the way to, you know, whether some of these candidates that may, didn't make it to the second round will or won't endorse Mohamed Morsi, or perhaps even have to fix some of them. Uh, this is, nothing has been settled yet, but I think today's news with the Mubarak verdict is going to have an impact on these negotiations. Well, but before we get to the verdict, I know we've been guilty, understandably so, of pretty much ignoring every other Arab country for much of the last three months. It's, it's so easy to get sucked into all Egypt all the time. But it's worth noting that this last week, immediately after Election Day, uh, you know, the latest in a string of atrocities in Syria, and one that seems to have set things to a new level, took place in, is it Hula? So, apparently pronounced Hula or Huli, the uh, local. Right, we should we should at least acknowledge and pay tribute to to, to this. So, Sandra, please explain. Um, well, I, if you've all been watching the news and these awful pictures of uh, uh, children's bodies uh, uh, from uh, mass executions uh, taking place, so Hula is, uh, is actually a number of hamlets basically near homes, and uh, it all started on May twenty fifth with an altercation uh, between Syrian soldiers uh, and uh, uh, armed rebels uh, that continued into a series of back and forth until eventually the Syrian army launched artillery shells onto uh, the village. And later, and here it's not clear, we don't have enough information yet, despite the, the, some of the important information that came out of the UN, uh, a fact-finding mission in terms of both confirming that uh, uh, there were about 100, at least 108 people killed, that the vast majority of them were women and children, uh, and some of the sequence of events, but, but the people who, who, who did the bulk of the killing were, it was not actually from artillery shelling, it was from at least two distinct mass executions carried out by what are said to be Shabiha, uh, mm-hmm. these armed militias, uh, Shia and Awi Shabihas from neighboring uh, villages. Uh, here, again, we don't know what, whether this is exactly what happened, whether it was a Shabiha with the Syrian army, whether it was separate. Uh, uh, and this is the, the confusing picture uh, of the, uh, you know, what probably we should have started calling a long time ago the Syrian civil war. Mm. That, how much, you know, obviously the state is encouraging the Shabihas, how closely it works with them, we don't really know. But beyond that, if Shia and Alawi villages are starting to attack Sunni and Christian ones, there is a wider problem than just the state versus the people. There's a sectarian issue coming to the front. But in this case, it seems because there were army units right in the vicinity as this was going on, and the survivors described the people who attack them as wearing army uniforms. So, I mean, there's there's plenty of reason to believe this was a, there was complete collusion and orchestration from, from the army and the state in this attack, which of course the Syrian government says 
was carried out by terrorists. Yeah, by the, the Syrian government is claiming that it was carried out by Al Qaeda. Uh, they claimed also the, the several explosions by Al Qaeda artillery units. No, they said no, the actual the, killing house to house. The exact oh, okay, yeah. okay. Uh, there's there's been several uh, uh, terrorist attacks in Damascus. Uh, against mm-hmm. senior officials in the last week, they've also the Syrian government has also claimed they're from Al Qaeda. It's not clear. I mean, basically, the entire conflict is becoming much more violent, and this is the worst massacre uh, uh, to date. And it's really just shocking when when when, when you see that that it's something like of the 108 victims, maybe 80 are women and children. Correct. And and geopolitically, I know that you've had a, an ongoing phenomenon of sort of Western European countries expelling their Syrian ambassadors, but in terms of the UN, we're really no closer to any kind of traction on this. We still have China and Russia vetoing. So, well, I think you know two two, two things uh, uh, in terms of the international impact. First, it really puts the UN mission, the Kofi Annan mission in Syria. Uh, in a bit of a bind. On the one hand, it looks like it's you know going around and talking about the ceasefire that's never happening, uh, and dealing with the murderous regime, and and that and, you know these, it should be aborted. and being played by a murderous played, regime, yeah. regime, and perhaps helping the regime by time. And this is this is uh, the main criticism. On the other hand, the whole massacre was also the first time you could say that having the UN on the ground being able to investigating giving us the clearest picture of what's happened so far is a real asset. I mean, because at the end of the day, they are documenting the crimes of this regime, uh, especially considering that the international community still doesn't seem to have much inclination to to carry out a, a military intervention against the, the Assad regime, uh, uh, especially since you cannot get at this point because of Russia and China a uh, go ahead for such a, uh, at least lawful intervention in their international law, you know, what are you going to do? The UN being there, at the very least, gives us much more of an accurate picture than we would be able to get uh, uh, otherwise, is one, one argument I've heard. Yeah, no, I mean, perhaps in, a sen- in the sense that, that you, we have more information about this, but it's such a it's such a meager. I think we're all sort of at a loss for words. Um, yeah, I, you don't know sick. what to say. It's it's it's. Well, then it it's comes, gross. It comes down to, to to what can be done about it. What can be done about it? I mean, I, 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 there's a, certainly Arab Gulf states, uh, uh, politicians in, in in France and in, in the U.S. who would like to intervene militarily. Well, also for me, it comes down to, and I don't know anything about Russian politics, I don't what does it take to get, to persuade Russia to, to cut the cord to Syria and stop protecting? Because it seems I like think the answer is actually nothing. I think, I think there's nothing that will convince so them. Valuable to I them. disagree. And why are they so, uh, why did they, why did they decide to play this game so... T- just this degree against the, you know, the U.S. Uh-huh. The rest here, here, here's the standard explanation for this. I mean, first, uh, Russia has a naval base in Tartus on uh, the Mediterranean Sea in Syria. Secondly, it's a major exporter of weapons to Syria. Thirdly, Syria is the last remaining client state of the former Soviet empire in the Middle East that right. Russia can claim for itself. And then there's the external type of uh, aspect of it. Uh, uh, which is that Syria, uh, the Russians feel that they were duped over the Libyan intervention, which turned into much more right. of, a, of an intervention than they thought. And I forgot they, about oh, that. They they were pissed about that. That they they, they 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 signed on and then said this isn't what we signed up for immediately. And it seemed actually sincere. It didn't seem like political dancing. It seemed like they actually felt like yeah. And and Russia and China both have an anti-interventionist policy that's long-standing. Uh, they, you know they see as. Western plays against their interests. So, but I disagree that there one. I think there is one possible outcome for this, which isn't you know the most satisfactory one. But 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 where you get the Russians on board for some type of limited regime change is that if the next regime that comes in is still friendly to their interests. But by limited regime change, do we mean another goddamn member of the Assad family? I think it would have to be someone from outside. At least someone else's family, for a chance? Basically, the Yemeni model. It's a really, really crappy, 
Do you have any Negotiated local Negotiated from the outside, no genuine change, and handover. So it's not regime change. We just need, it's, it's literally a misnomer. It's, it's, it's still a regime. It's specification it's, of the conflict. It's rebranding. Or rebranding of a conflict. I mean, certainly in Yemen, it doesn't have to have pacified much, but uh, uh, it, it, it's calming things down, trying to avoid uh, the, the, kind of the, the Syrian conflict spiraling into a regional catastrophe. Okay. Um, you know, the so hopeless, yes? Hopeless? For now, I mean, it's, it's hard to see uh, what's... Uh, I'm done. After the elections, I've become the cynic on the team. So uh, I'm just going to try to drag you guys down with me for, for the next several podcasts. I don't know. You might change. I think that you're, I think you're, the, most, uh, you're the most emotional member. So you were, you know, enthusiastic last time. It, don't worry. We're done. Broken. We're past all that. I'll never love again. You might change again. You might be time. manic depressive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just bipolar along with the rest of my of my fellow citizens. Okay, well, anyway. leaving 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 behind the unsolvable, but we feel the duty to mention it. Um, you know, suffering in Syria. I guess we're back to back, back to, to the people. Mubarak verdict today. Tell us what happened as 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 an extra little kick in the balls for the Egyptian populace. Uh, Isander, would you like to narrate this? Well, uh, you know, I, I, as I watched it on TV today, this, this, uh, the judge uh, launches into this preamble before his verdict where he talks about a glorious revolution. Oh, it went uh, on for so long. I left the room. I actually... You guys have no idea. It went on for 20 minutes. That's nothing for an Egyptian judge. <laughs> People should really... No, I was told, be prepared. It could last two hours. They're allowed to sum up the entire case. And in fact... I would have liked a better summary of the case and the evidence and what he took into account and what he didn't and, you know, what evidence his verdict was based on and how mm -hmm. he arrived at his things. It was, a sh it was really, believe me, from what I've been okay. told, it was a short summation. So I stand corrected. After a remarkably brief and succinct statement from the judge, then what a happened? Half an hour or so where he t talks about how great the revolution is and how the martyrs were betrayed and so on and so forth. So, which leads you to expect this really revolutionary... Verdict. So he was pro-martyr? He's, he's, he's climbing out on the controversial in defense of... I want to see a politician come out there and say, screw the martyrs. I want, that's, that, that's a position. I want to see someone take an anti-martyr position. I met someone who took an anti-martyr position. Good, I want... Good. But anyway, uh, maybe I'll come back to it later. But, uh, uh, so after he does this, Dramatic silence. There was this pause that was. Like, you, you, <laughs> He's milking you, it. Yeah, you, you, it was this, this, this dramatic pause that, that, that really you, know, you could feel the tension. Uh, I was following Twitter as I watched it on TV and people were going crazy. <laughs> I think Zenobia almost had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they announced Mohammed Hosni al Said Mubarak, life in prison, which life in prison is 25 years in Egypt. Uh, 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 Hadley, uh, Adley, uh, Habib al-Adli, the, the former interior ministry, life in prison. So people are thinking, wow, this is the verdict we were expecting. Mm. And then... Everybody else. Alain Gamal Mubarak basically got off because uh, Statue of Limitations on their case. So I was, I was wondering why even the prosecutor brought this case forward if he knew that the statute of limitations yeah, would apply. If it was a statute of limitations, how did it even get this far? Statute of limitations exactly. violations died three, you know, like three and, stages ago. And to be fair, I mean, the Dalla and Gamal cases were in a way the, 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 the most common congress because what you charge them with exactly in a normal court, I mean, there was some degree of questions of financial impropriety and now there's in fact there's a new case against them that's completely separate that's about to launch which was the first sign that today was going to be disappointing when two or three days ago out of nowhere this whole new case is announced that involves Alain and Gamel and the senior people at EFG Hermes which is sort of one of the top financial houses in Egypt and I knew then that they were prepping us for a disappointment today yeah yeah and they, uh, but since, since neither Alao Gamal Mubarak had any official executive position in government, they were only ruling party uh, members, it, w it was probably hard to pin down responsibility for, for, for uh, certainly what happened during the 18 days. And I think most importantly and outrageously, the acquittal of all of the senior yes. interior officials, the head of the Central Security Forces, the riot police, the head of state security, the, the secret political police, uh, and several other... The entire inner circle of Habib al -Adli. 
Which is just contradictory because if he gets a life sentence um, and it doesn't, how is it, it's like he alone. I mean, I think again, as Sarah Carr, whose blog you mentioned earlier said, basically this means that Habib al-Adli personally gave the order to have everybody shot while the heads of state security and the, and the Amna Merkazi were off shopping at the mall. During the revolution. Yeah, like how, how could they not... No, it's literally involved? impossible. It's, 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 it defies the laws of physics. Forget justice. And my interpretation of it is that it's, I mean, you know, if you want to be cynical, is the message that it sends is, okay, somebody had to be held responsible we're holding responsible the one top guy. We're making this one change. Oh, we're cutting this down to the bare minimum of the accountability. System, the system is not being held responsible. And to the Ministry of Interior, it says, don't worry. You know, we're just, we're, ta- we're changing the head. Habib Allah is going to take the fall. All the rest of you can relax. You know, and also it says, like, the problem was only there. It was like, the, the problem was only in the head, which has kind of been this the army's argument about the entire revolution is that it was just about Mubarak. It yeah. was just about this one person exactly. in charge. And this is where it ties in actually with the Shafiq candidacy, because the Shafiq candidacy, the idea that, that, that this close aid to Mubarak could come back and be the next president of Egypt, is precisely based on the argument that the revolution was about Gamal and Hosni Mubarak and the Mubarak family and a few of the, his old you know, cronies in the ruling party. It wasn't and, and, the Nizam that was the problem. Exactly. It's not the full uh, system. It was, oh, the system was perverted by a few bad apples. But now we've cut away some of the dead wood, and now we're back with a vengeance. And this is the argument that Shafiq is making when Shafiq comes out after you know, getting into the second round and says, oh, we're going to, you know, oh, I'm for the revolution. I'm, I'm in choice. <sighs> uh, that's, Did he say nice things about the martyrs too? Exactly, yeah. Oh, yeah. good, good. And, and this is what he says. This is what it means. And it comes back to basically, it's not, it was just about these top people. It's not about the military core of the regime. It's not about the fact that there's been police states since the 1950s in this country. Uh, it's it's about... I think, I think there's an element of astonishing uh, chutzpah. Uh, I, 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 I struggle for another word other than that. I suppose Arabic, what, begaha is the, is the closest thing we have for that just kind of outrageous shamelessness, openness, pr- pride in something that you really should be ashamed of that, 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 that's, that's on display here of, you know, honestly, I didn't expect, I'm not upset about life in prison for Mubarak rather than death. I never expected that they were going to kill Hosni Mubarak. I just, I never expected that. Um... It's 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 the all of the senior deputies of the Ministry of Interior. I mean, this just strikes me as a massive and conscious fuck you to the nation, and 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 I don't know how to. And I think people are taking it as that. If you look as we speak right now, Tahrir has been filling up all day. They're getting pretty good numbers. I'm heading there now. It's hard to tell how big or where it's going to go, but there was supposed to be a big protest yesterday, protesting Shafiq and basically an anybody but Shafiq protest in Tahrir, and less than a thousand people, maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred max, showed up. We're getting much bigger numbers as we speak, and it will continue to grow. This is touching a nerve with people, and it should. This is this is despicable. Because I think people have really been waiting a long time on this trial as a very strong indication of whether something is going to change. And e- even the condemnation of Aladli and Mubarak, a lot of people expect that they're going to get out on appeal. So in the end, I'm, I'm predicting a Gerald Ford, to... Richard Nixon, around about month four of the or, of the Shafiq or, presidency, or, he's going to commute it or 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 let greatly lessen the sentence. Or just on a procedural judicial appeal, because the other thing that really needs to be mentioned here is that in fact the case was weak, and that the problem is that the public prosecutor's office, which is a highly politicized office, and it's run, and the public prosecutor himself, there's been demands for his dismissal for years presented a very weak case and got no cooperation, unsurprisingly, from the Ministry of Interior, who, when we requested for the many, you know, footage and recorded phone calls that it's well known it has of the days of the uprising, sent letters saying that they had accidentally been erased, 
Um, and, and, but, but you know, that was to be expected, but this was a very well-documented revolution, and you could have built a case, and the public prosecutor built a really crap, really weak case, and everybody who observed this. So you have this other problem that basically if there's no serious political will to, to pursue these charges seriously, then, then nothing will come of it until you basically have a different, you know, a real change of the of the of the political leadership. You are not going to get serious judicial action on on charges like this. Okay, I will absolutely buy your contention that the public prosecutor's office was not up to this job. That it's possible that they bungled this prosecution. And I think we even talked about this last year. And I know I got into it uh, in parts in my book. That my, my biggest concern over the this post revolutionary reckoning is we have why what reason did we ever have to believe that the egyptian prosecutor's office was up for and capable of this incredibly complex and delicate investigation you know and dealing with a ministry that's going to do absolutely nothing to help them of course but regardless of the case do we have any reason to believe that this judgment was made based on the evidence i mean it's such a precise, as I said, the sheer precision of it. That, that I mean, I, I I cannot bring myself to believe that simply that the prosecutor's office managed to prove a good case against Mubarak and a good case against Habib al-Adli and nobody else. Right. I, no, I can't it, it buy seems, it. It seems politically kind of caliber, and I so I, I don't think would a great job by the prosecutor's office have produced a different verdict. Well, I think perhaps it would have at least produced a record of a strong case that could have been used later. It would have at least produced a verdict that won't be really easy to overturn in a few months. Maybe. By another court. I mean... Yeah. The thing is, all these cases, pretty much all of them are going to appeal again. Uh, uh, the, in the cases of the ones where there's convictions, they're appealing. Uh, they have the right to. And uh, in the cases... Uh, in the case of the acquittals, there's also calls for retrial and appeals, and so so so, so basically the, the story isn't over. It's sure. For months and months but and months. I, I think I mean, the but most. It's, it's a very satisfying. I mean, from the very beginning after the the, the uprising last year, I thought it was a completely wrong approach. I mean, first let's remember that it took SCAF months to actually two two months. Anyone, even everyone was running around. Habib al-Adli went down immediately, yeah, yeah. right? And Ahmed Ez, yeah. and almost nobody else of note. And and you and I were 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 were, were in the habit of, of just putting out tweets that, that why the hell is Safwat al-Sharif still running around? Why are these people not in jail? And that was one of the first moments, like that combined with the state security situation where, where the, the, the military basically turned a blind eye as state security was, was openly and wholesale burning evidence and, and forcing civilians to overrun these places. Like, those were the twin uh-ohs where you're like, okay, this is, you know, who's, they're not on the right side. And you almost don't want to believe it, but. Because the revolution never seized control of any state institutions. I mean, not of the not of the judiciary, not of the prosecutor's office, not of the government, not of I mean, wh where? Mm -hmm. Why would you trust that these institutions are going to turn around and suddenly implement transitional justice when they're not give, being given directives to do so, and when their own you know institutional interests and personal interests of the people in them are are not uh, are not headed that way. I mean, the question now I think of sort of interesting, and you mentioned this already, is what's, what's the reaction to this? How is this going to play out? You know, the second round of the presidential elections is on the 16th of this month. Right now, as you said, there's people gathering in Tahrir. There is a lot of anger over this. Um, this is spiking one of those spontaneous, you know, certainly not January 25th levels or anything like that, but it's, it's prompting one of these spontaneous outbursts of people just gathering in the street and finding each other and, and that, but but I'm not sure what we do with that. What you uh, have is the presidential candidates sort of positioning themselves already. So, you know, Hamdin Sabahi is in Tahrir, Mohamed Morsi says he's heading there and Mohamed Morsi has also already made multiple statements like if I'm elected president, I'll, I'll create a special, you know, investigation team. I'd never let these people out of jail. I'd seek the death penalty, all sorts of stuff. Uh -huh. And so, you know, one, one possibility is that is that you know indignation over this verdict and the sense that um, you know nothing is changing and it might lead to more people to vote for Morsi. 
I think that's that's that may be quite likely. I think we're, we're this does play probably to some degree to Morsi's advantage. Uh, but I think also there's a huge opportunity here because in the discussions that have taken place in the last week uh, between basically the liberal, secular, non-former regime forces, political forces, uh -huh. and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, have been about safeguarding, you know, in exchange for support for, for, for Morsi, safeguarding uh, the, the, the secular nature of the state. Uh, it's, it's been mostly about religious issues. It's not as been about governance. I think that's been completely the wrong way to approach this thing. The, the, the Muslim Brotherhood has already conceded on, on several religious issues anyway, uh, in terms of you know, for giving cults, for instance, the right to their own laws, you know, and it's not a position of Sharia law and everyone and so on. And the Muslim Brotherhood is not going to abandon, I think. It's, it's long-term aim of, 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 of implementing mm -hmm. Sharia. This is a long-term process to get them to negotiate on that, to get them to, 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 to define what, what that even means. Much more important now is to finally, and, and neither the Muslim Brothers nor really, frankly, the rest of the political class has done this, articulated this in any detail, is to take on the regime. Say that if Morsi becomes president, what he does, you know, he's talking about appointing Baraday as prime minister. Who cares about Baraday as prime minister? Appoint Baraday as minister. Shafiq is saying this? Uh, uh, well, Shafiq had said this, Baraday turned it down, but, 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 but Morsi is saying this. Ooh, and and uh, okay, but, maybe. But, but, but Baraday as prime minister is, is useless. So you need a competent uh, uh, prime minister who someone has some experience, knows knows how ministries works, and so on. Baraday would be much more useful as the new head of intelligence, as the new defense minister, as the new minister of interior. I I always keep advocating. I want to see Baraday named a minister of information with the sole purpose of closing down the ministry of information in three years then we move him somewhere else we just sort of we like this just 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 this bureaucratic assassin we send him in when something needs to be cut in half or eliminated entirely yeah but certainly you insist that all these ministries that the army has in fact signaled that they don't want to let anybody but them appoint the sovereign ministries this is a new word intelligence judiciary um uh, interior. information interior you make the, you know you have morsi say his number one priority is going to be to appoint new ministers there a new public prosecutor the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood has been dealing with the army since the revolution, and, and I think the price for support has to be not dealing with the army. And we work against these generals and scaf. We make sure that the next civilian uh, minister of defense is a civilian. We make sure that the, uh, uh, these positions of authority, the real deep state, mm -hmm. are, are controlled. You know, that we, we will take these over for civilians to run, not for to be the preserve of, of uh, retired generals and right. active duty generals. Uh, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the incredible power that the intelligence services have in today's Egypt, you know, and these are generals appointed by other generals, basically. Um, that's that I think is it would be the great compromise to 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 make. I don't think we're seeing it though. We're not seeing people articulated because I don't know. It seems to be inimaginable to a lot of the political actors that you could take on that way. But you know, the premise of a unity, Morsi as the unity candidate, should be built not on you know let's all get along, causing Muslims and so on. Mm -hmm. Let's take down this regime yeah change we to I'm, I'm all for I'm I'm I you know when it when I when it turned out that it was when it became clear that it was Shafiq Morsi you know after spending a day of black depression and despair I pretty much thought about it for a half hour and was like okay Morsi I'll vote for Morsi um, I, I don't you know I don't like the brotherhood I don't trust them but anybody but Shafiq but the question is what, I mean, the people who feel like you, what are they going to be able to get the Brotherhood to credibly commit to in the right. next two weeks? And, you know, will they will they hold to those commitments? That's kind of the big question. There's been so many missed opportunities even, even... in the last 15 months in this transition phase. This is kind of one of the last chances to, to salvage something yes. and we'll see how it goes. Well, on that we'll, note, yeah, we'll, we'll we're going we'll get back to you. Uh, well, what's next week and next ten days or so with uh, with another podcast, and we'll see how it turns out. I mean, right now negotiations are underway. I just spoke a few hours ago to uh, uh, an aide to Mohamed Morsi, and he said that meetings are still taking place. They're 
you know, there's been a bit of a reaction from the Muslim Brotherhood saying, oh, you know, these people are asking for too much. There is, in one case, they asked to dissolve the Muslim Brotherhood. But that's like, <laughs> so you know, we need a little bit of maturity and, yes. and, and realism from 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 uh, uh, politicians. But uh, it, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. I mean, I think uh, a lot of it depends on what happens. Uh, Tonight and the next few days in Dakar. Next few days. I mean, we'll see where this goes. It's too late to predict that it's going to something that's going to sustain or develop into something that that would alter this this uh, course of events that we seem to be locked into. But it's it's worth noting the spontane the spontaneous, very emotional, very diverse reaction that's happening in downtown Cairo, and I, I can't wait to see where it all goes. But uh, yeah, off we go. Shafiq Morsi, people. Here we go. Democracy, baby. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Um, I didn't introduce everyone at the uh, beginning of the show, so I'll do it uh, now. You get to say goodbye. Ashraf Khalil. Bye. Ursula Lindsay. Bye. And I'm Sandra Alamrani. Bye-bye. And anybody who votes for Ahmed Shafiq, I want you to unsubscribe from this podcast. You're not allowed to listen to us anymore.